In the late spring of 1937, the murder of a young Italian immigrant stormed the Paris headlines. The first murder to have taken place on the metro, it was a baffling affair with no witnesses and a murder of unusual precision. As the country mired in political turmoil, newspapers filled their columns with rumours of the victim's life, quickly filling the information void with sensational stories of divey music halls, gangsters and allusions to sordid affairs. The truth, however, would turn out to be far more bombastic than even the most spurious rumours, leading to the slow unravelling of a story of clandestine intelligence, assassinations and a plot to overthrow the government. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 6 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben and I hope this episode finds you very well. Happy Easter. I hope you've had a, a lovely holiday weekend. There's not too much to say before the episode starts this week. Just a little bit of fun patron news coming up later on in the episode. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that in the second half of the episode, I guess. So otherwise, um, we'll just move straight into the story. This is the Letitia Tarot Affair. After the conclusion of the First World War in 1918, post-war society across Europe, whilst enjoying a short-lived optimism, quickly fell into a mire of complex social and political transformations across countries. In France, casualties from the war and the Spanish flu were on a scale not seen or felt for generations, with the nation losing over 10% of its adult workforce to the fighting alone. The pandemic that swept across borders shortly after the war's conclusion only worked to worsen an already difficult and precarious economic position that saw countries struggle to climb up from their knees. Despite this, the French population grew slowly but steadily, with economic stability following just behind. By the time of the Roaring Twenties, the economy had begun to grow rapidly. Communist unions had flourished, whilst industrial output grew at a rate that, along with expansive social and cultural innovation, helped to cover up a veritable bird's nest of political turmoil that bubbled violently under the surface. The prosperity of the French Empire and the worldwide renown of Parisian culture going some lengths to mask the unease felt towards the rise of communism and fascism that stoked the fires of the socialists and the industrialists. Whilst France had initially welcomed immigration after the war in efforts to kickstart a heavily diminished workforce, by the 1930s, as the effects of the Great Depression began to be felt by the French, this easygoing policy became a source of widespread tension, as xenophobia and suspicion fed on the economic tightening caused by the global crash. In 1930, 7% of the French population were immigrants that had flocked towards Paris looking for work after the First World War, one million of which were from Italy, who left their home country in ever larger numbers many attempting to distance themselves from Mussolini's fascist dictatorship. Outside of the French borders, communists in Russia, fascists in Spain and Italy, and the ever-growing threat of war from a German nation who are finding their own way to deal with economic depression through Hitler's increasingly popular Nazi party. This turmoil was mirrored within France itself. Widespread unemployment and an increasing lack of confidence in the ruling party fueled the rise of extreme groups on both the left and the right. Communists, fascists, socialists and industrialists vied for a controlling hand in the future of the nation, which often led to outbreaks of protest that quickly turned to violence. Scandals in the French government led to violent riots, incited by numerous right-wing groups that saw French police opening fire on its own citizens. Counter-protests from the left who saw the fascists of the right as a threat and revolution as a solution, only led to a more violence, so that by the elections of 1936, the divisions across the country bordered on civil war. The left-wing victory of the Front Populaire during the elections, a unified group of communists and socialists allied against fascism and headed by Leon Blum, a moderate Jewish socialist, was largely seen as a political response to the widespread fear of fascism in France but the honeymoon for the left was short-lived. Blum's government dissolved far-right leagues outright, banning them from operating, pushing many on the right towards activism, whilst the Spanish Civil War 
caused further division as groups from both the left and the right saw the government's neutral, anti-interventionist position as too weak. Amongst all of this, the people of France largely continued to live their lives. In Paris, Balenciaga and Coco Chanel moved closer to their wealthy clientele, lining the Champs-Élysées with their chic style. Surrealism and Cubism bewildered and inspired as the likes of Salvador Dali and Man Ray painted scenes soundtracked by Django Reinhardt and Edith Piaf. It was, as Hermes Hemingway described it, a movable feast. For the ordinary men and women, life is somewhat less romanticised and people lived in cooped-up old brick apartments. They worked hard in factories, danced to jazz in music halls, watched American-made movies and read crime stories on the metro. Letitia Thoreau was an Italian-born immigrant living in Paris in 1937, doing much the same. At least, until she was murdered whilst riding the metro one night in May. Working out precisely how ordinary she was, however, is a story much, much more complicated. Letitia Nurasat was born on September 11, 1907, in Uyachi, a small rural Italian town in the northeastern Val d'Aosta region, close to the border of France and Switzerland. One of the smallest and least densely populated regions of Italy, the people living there spoke French and Italian due to the long-running back and forth of control throughout history by both France and Italy. Life there was working at a pace dangerously close to reverse, with the economy driven by the production of butter, cheese and wine and cattle farming. Letitia's upbringing was unspectacular. Her father, a veteran of the First World War, worked as a farmer and construction worker and the family lived a modest life. Brought up by her mother, Marie, largely alone, the family was close and their surroundings were peaceful. In 1921, however, the Nurasat family embarked on a familiar journey to many in the region when they emigrated to France. The Val d'Aosta had been shedding its population across the border since the 19th century, as it was a natural move for people who were, in many respects, as French as they were Italian, and with the slow economy of the area, the promise of a more prosperous future in France and the region's strong anti-fascist culture heading towards Paris was a move taken on both an economical and political level. Letitia, along with her mother Marie, sister Simone, and two brothers, Henri and Virgil, all moved to Lyon, leaving their father behind in Italy, claiming that he preferred the simple rural life and that he had a horror of big cities, though in reality it was for all intents and purposes a marital separation. Letitia's mother soon took a lover in France, and the rest of the family broke all ties with their father, except Letitia, who visited him yearly. It was an unsteady few years for the family in France, and by 1925, after her mother split with her new French lover, they moved to Paris, where the Italian emigrant community thrived. Once in Paris, they settled down in the lively 12th arrondissement, a working-class district with a large Italian presence on the eastern side of the city and the northern bank of the Seine, and home to the Gare de Lyon. By 1926, Letitia's life had become firmly entrenched in the Parisian lifestyle. She worked in the factories around her home, and it only became richer when she met and fell in love with Jules Thoreau, the son of a wealthy industrialist, 16 years her senior. The pair struck up a clandestine relationship, hidden from Jules's parents, who would no doubt have frowned upon their son dating a young Italian immigrant who worked in the very factory that they themselves owned. After a courtship of several years, the couple married in secret to everyone but Letitia's father on December the 21st, 1929. The marriage, happy as it was, however, was tragically all too brief, as Jules fell ill, suffering from tuberculosis, and passed away in 1934. On his deathbed, he revealed his marriage to his parents, but as he had feared, they refused to accept or recognise it, abandoning Letitia, who was now a 22-year-old widow with no inheritance. Once more, Letitia found herself on the bottom rung of French society. She moved into an apartment in the 20th arrondissement, neighbouring her mother, decorating the place with a few items of furniture that she had managed to take possession of after her husband's untimely death. During her time together with Jules, she was introduced to the Parisian world of the Baal Musette, 
small music halls that opened afternoon and night, the diverse patrons whiling away the hours dancing to accordion-driven waltzes and polkas. For the upper classes, they were a place to slum it and experience the excitement and culture of the dancers, artists and gangsters, whilst for the working classes, they were a place to socialise and mingle with a different sort. In the daytime, they catered toward young men and women looking for partners, whilst the evening dances stepped into somewhat seedier territories as the darkened rooms grew ever more smoke-filled with gangsters, prostitutes and political activists making up a good deal with the clientele. Letitia had instantly found the culture of the Balmusette enrapturing. Whether it was the dancing, the music which was often performed by Italian immigrants, or the feeling of finding a home, there she found the second love of her life. After Jules's death, she continued to spend much of her free time frequenting the venues. By day, her life was dictated by work, where she toiled in a wax polish factory. But once her shift was done, and as the night fell over Paris, she quickly found herself back at the Balmusette. She spent so much time there, in fact, that eventually she found up working at several, either as a cloakroom attendant or employed by the hall to dance with single men. Known amongst the crowds as Yolandi, she distracted herself from mourning her husband by dancing to the upbeat drones of the accordion. Life continued peacefully, both for Letitia, who was well-known and well-liked around her home, and for her alter ego, Yolandi, throughout the world of the Balmusette, where she was equally well-regarded. This was, at least, until one week in May of 1937, when she was attacked twice within the space of seven days, once outside her home by a man wielding a knife, and a second time when two men attempted to drag her into the car as she walked home. Still, she was made of tougher stuff, and her life in the 12th arrondissement, and more recently the Balmusette, had thickened her skin enough for her to laugh off both occasions, at least in public. The events had shaken her more than she cared to admit, however, and her response of taking to carry an umbrella to fend off any would-be attackers was, in reality, a small comfort. The weekend of Sunday the 16th of May 1937 was a national holiday throughout France. The grey skies that hung across the city did little to dampen the mood of the crowds who were enjoying the long weekend and the comfort of knowing that they had no work to wake up for in the morning. Letitia spent the morning with her youngest brother, Henri, who had visited her apartment to deliver a vivid green skirt and jacket made by her mother. After she had dressed in the green suit, fur stole, white hat and gloves, and secured a pin of the Ligue Republicaine de Bien Public, a French left-wing political group that she had recently become a member of, to her breast, they went for a drink at the Chez Madame Geraldo Bistro, and then paid a visit to a hair salon, where Henri got a haircut and Letitia had her hair set in finger waves and dyed blonde, a bold change to the naturally dark waves that she normally sported. Afterwards, the pair took lunch at their family home with their mother and then took a taxi to Le Métage, a large balmusette to dance the afternoon away and support their mutual friend who was performing the afternoon's music. As the evening fell, the teacher excused herself, stepping out from the dance hall at 6pm in order to return home and change so that she could meet with the rest of her family at a banquet being held for a public service organisation for Italian immigrants. At 6.19pm, she stepped onto the bus that would take her from Chateau Galard to the Port de Charenton metro station, a route she travelled frequently, and thus she knew it well. She flashed a smile at the familiar face of the driver as she stepped onto the bus, but sat alone and spoke to no one around her, departing again just minutes later as they arrived at the metro. By now, the grey skies hanging above the city had collapsed, and a heavy rain had begun to fall. So, dashing into the metro station, the teacher waited for the train, which arrived promptly at 6.25. She stepped into the empty, first-class car, a small comfort that she would treat herself to from time to time, and sat down with her back to the packed second-class car behind. At 6.27, the train pulled out of the station, arriving at the next, Port Dorie, less than a minute later. As it slowed down to approach the station, two men standing in the second-class car, Raymond Bruel and André Lejeune, thought they heard the screams of a woman coming from the car in front. So, as they pulled to a standstill, 
they rushed out onto the platform and back into the first class car to see if they might be able to help anyone who may have been in distress. At the same time, a middle-aged man, Raymond de Breil, boarded the car via the lower doors, along with his fiancée and their friend. Whilst a trio of prostitutes, Elizabeth Guy, Mary Caton and Yvette Bailey, boarded the car via the second set of doors that sat towards the front of the train. Once inside the car, all three groups of people were confronted with a scene far away from that which they had expected. On the floor, dressed in a vivid green skirt and jacket with white hat and gloves, lay Letitia Tarot, as if she had slipped from her seat, gasping for air, with a knife driven into her throat right down to the hill. One of her gold earrings was lying next to her in a pool of blood. A metro worker dashed to fetch a police officer, returning with Inspector Lavelle, who he had met outside the station moments later. Lavelle leant over Letitia and asked her who had stabbed her, but the woman, teetering on the edge of life and death, was unable to sound an answer. The officer took hold of the knife handle and dislodged the blade from her throat. However, far from helping, it only opened the wound, which expelled blood across the floor of the train car as her jugular severed. By the time Letitia Tarot reached the hospital, she was long deceased. The police investigation into the murder began almost immediately. Shortly after her discovery, Chief Inspector Monsieur André Billet and Inspector Chalet joined Inspector Lavelle on the station platform where statements were taken from the three prostitutes who had boarded the car and discovered the attack. As some of a very small group of witnesses, police had high hopes for their observations, though they were quickly dashed as none of the group had seen anyone else either step off from the train as it pulled into the station, nor on board the train car itself. The other group of people who had boarded the train, Raymond de Braille, his fiancée and their friend had left both the train car and the metro station quickly in order to avoid becoming wrapped up in the affair, and so the police were forced to track them down, which they promptly managed. Upon questioning the light-footed witness, Raymond told them that he had left quickly after seeing that there was no hope for the victim of the attack, both in order to shield his fiancée from any scandal that might arise from the murder and to allow him time to rush home and change his clothes, which had been stained by blood from the train car in the hopes that they could still make it to the play that they had been on the way to attend before they were sidetracked. Despite this flimsy excuse, police never questioned the group further. There was a method to this lax attitude, however, that ruled anyone in the group out of suspicion. Very quickly, the inspectors at the scene had made a group of assumptions based on the crime scene. Firstly, they assumed that the killer had been a man of some strength, as he had been able to drive the knife into Letitia's throat down to the hill in a moving train car. Secondly, the murder itself had reminded them of Italian-style assassinations of the day, where a stiletto was commonly used to stab someone in the neck, the weapon then being left behind as a macabre marker. This was a line of thought, further emboldened after the inspectors had rifled through Letitia's purse, discovering her ID and identifying her as an Italian immigrant. Alongside the ID card, they also found an amount of cash, a first-class train ticket, and a letter confirming a meeting with a man named Jean at 10pm that night. The amount of cash in the wallet seemed to rule out robbery as motive. The early theory that it was a professional hit was then given further credence by Dr Charles Paul, who carried out the autopsy on Thoreau, finding no marks upon her body and confirming that the cause of death had been a knife wound entering the throat from behind the right ear severing the jugular and embedding the tip of the blade into the spinal column. Quickly ruling out suicide, Dr. Paul instead told the police that he believed it to have been a professional killing. The murderer approached Letitia from the rear, where he grabbed her by the shoulders, pulled her to the left and plunged the knife into her neck, possibly leaving the weapon in the wound in order to keep the scene as clean as possible. With such a quick, precise killing, the police were now convinced that it had been a professional execution and so began to focus their investigative efforts upon their earlier suspicions on the involvement of organised crime. This early theory did hit a small, temporary bump after the police visited Turo's apartment. Inside, they found it modestly decorated, consisting of an entryway, small kitchen and a single bedroom. It was here they discovered the truth about her marriage and consequent widowing to Jules and also of her position at the Maxi Polish factory. In a drawer in the bedroom, 
they uncovered a stash of letters, apparently sent to Thoreau from men they assumed to be her lovers. The first was a man named Jean Martin, a sailor stationed at Toulon and the man with whom the letter in her purse had arranged a meeting on the night of the murder. The pair had met at the Balmusette, but Jean had been drafted into the Navy soon after. The police tracked him down for questioning, but were told in no uncertain terms that the pair had not, in fact, been lovers at all. Jean explained that he had met Thoreau only very recently, and though they had been on friendly terms, and with no doubt Jean had one eye on creating something more, nothing had transpired as of yet. Far from the jealous lover that they had suspected, Martin was dropped entirely from suspicion once police checked with his military timetable, confirming that he'd not been given leave and was thus on base at the time of the murder. A similar story took place with the second man they tracked from the letters, named René Schramm. The vast majority of letters, numbering into the 20s, had come from René, and it was clear that this pair were more closely linked than Thoreau and Martin. René freely admitted to having become Thoreau's lover after they had met once more at the Balmusette in June of 1936. The letters confirmed that it was perhaps not the most secure relationship and René, who was younger than Thoreau, was clearly not a long-term plan. However, just as with Martin, police quickly confirmed that he had been on base during the time of the murder, thus allowing him to be once more confidently ruled out. The police next investigated the train car, which had been parked and stored in the garage area of the metro station. On board, they found little to give them any further clues. Fingerprints were found on the back bar of the seat behind Thoreau, but none were found on the knife, suggesting that the prints on the bar would not have corresponded to those of the killer, who had likely been wearing gloves. The murder weapon itself was just a common brand 8-inch knife with a 3.5-inch blade and a bone handle. Although it was common, the police could only trace its sale to two stores in Paris. Unfortunately, both were large discounters that sold in bulk to industry and restaurants and therefore did not keep detailed records of individual transactions. It was all very quickly turning into a blank slate for the investigating officers who had a murder on their hands without a single witness. No one appeared to have been seen getting in or out of the first-class car around the time of the murder except Thoreau herself. The murder must have been quick, taking no more than 90 seconds, which is the slowest the journey between the stations could have been, and whoever did it had left behind no fingerprints and no other clues. It was looking more and more like the perfect crime, which is, of course, just what the press went on to call it. In England, the papers reported on the murder of Letitia Thoreau in scant detail, allowing little more space than it took to explain that a woman had been murdered on the metro. In France, however, it was naturally a much, much bigger story, and the Parisian journalists were naturally quick to pick the story up and run with it. In the 1930s, the French press were well known for digging into a good crime story, and the jibe from the English side was that they often put more effort into solving crimes than the French police. The murder by itself was enough of a story to egg the journalists on given that it was the first murder to have taken place on the Paris metro since it began operation in 1900. That the murder was, as yet, a complete mystery and had taken place in such baffling circumstances just added to the hunger for the tale. The murder of Letitia Thoreau was quickly dubbed the murder on the metro, and all manner of detail and rumour pertaining to the young victim's life was poured over, looked into and prematurely printed up to a public who read about the crime with keen interest. Most of the earliest reports focus on Thoreau's personal life, painting her as a young, beautiful, innocent, who had been well-liked and well-meaning in everything she did, close with her family, who all said that she was, as always, right up to the day of her death, happy and carefree. It seemed as if even the strangers in her neighbourhood enjoyed seeing her pass by with her radiant smile. A hard worker, they interviewed her boss at the Maxi factory, who had nothing but praise for her diligence. I owe it to the memory of such a perfectly dignified and respectable person as Madame Thoreau to declare all the good everyone here thought of her. I hired her last November the 1st as a probationary employee whose duties consisted of gluing the labels on glass jars. She worked in a shop with about 20 workers under the orders of a foreman. We quickly noticed her intelligence and diligence 
Also, considering her a particularly talented colleague, we chose her to represent us as a demonstrator of maxi products in our booth at the last salon of homemaking arts. She carried out her duties with great spirit and success. Devoted to her dead husband, she had apparently worn black ever since his passing and visited his grave every Sunday since his death. It didn't take long, however, for this narrative to begin to unravel and the story to begin turning towards one of an ambitious social climber, hinting at immoral promiscuity. If, as her parents had told the press, she had always worn black and visited her husband's grave every Sunday, why did she do neither of these things on the day of her death? Furthermore, she had been a frequent patron of the Divey Bal Musettes, where she displayed the veneer of a lifestyle far above her real station. From where did she make this money that would have been needed to run such a lifestyle? It didn't take long for the illusions that Thoreau was leading a seedier double life, whether or not the facts actually fit. The letters found in her apartment, mostly from the same two men, one of which was a lover and a second of which a friend, became described as a trove of love letters written by a long string of scorned lovers, whilst her time spent at the Balmusette was steered in a direction very close to suggesting that Thoreau had perhaps been working there as a prostitute, or at the very least, was familiar with the seedier elements of the Parisian nightlife. They quickly uncovered that she worked in the cloakrooms from time to time, and then followed this up with stories of her being caught rifling through the pockets of the clientele whilst they danced the evening away, completely unawares. One of the more spectacular suggestions was that an Italian immigrant who visited her father once per year, she was, potentially, earning extra money from running drugs over the border. Why did she keep such odd hours, and why did she use two names and rub shoulders with the gangsters of the music halls? In this world of cocaine, opium, prostitutes and hitmen, she was presented as having lived a life of increasingly loose morals. As for the murder itself, two popular theories surfaced. The first suggested that Thoreau had been killed on the train before it even left the station in Port de Charenton, positing that the killer had jumped onto the train, quickly stabbed her, and then jumped back off the car before it departed, explaining why no one saw anyone leave the car upon its arrival in Port de Rie. The problem with this first theory is that there was still no witness that saw anyone but Thoreau step onto the train in Charenton. Further, the two men from the second-class carriage who discovered her body after the attack had said that they were alerted to it via a scream that they heard as the train approached Portori. If the killer had chosen to take this route, it would also have been incredibly high risk, as he would have been quickly trapped inside the car had anything not gone as planned. The second theory suggested that she was killed whilst the train was in motion between the two stations, with the killer slipping between the cars via the connecting door and departing from the second-class train in Port Dorie. This theory instantly gives rise to several issues, however, namely that no one saw anyone do such a thing during the journey and that the door itself had been locked, which was confirmed by the police, who also noted that the lock had not shown any sign of having been tampered with. Whilst the press rumours and theories may have left much to be desired, they did touch on an uncomfortable truth. If, as the police themselves were theorising, the murder had been a professional hit, then there was clearly more to the life of Letitia Thoreau than met the eye. Professionals didn't make a habit of killing random, good-natured citizens for no reason, so what was it that set Thoreau apart? As it happened, the truth was slowly being touched upon and as much as the press stories until now had seemed to focus on salacious rumour and sensational intrigue, the truth was turning out to be far, far more so. On May 27, 1937, the murder in the Metro case hit the cover story of popular French crime periodical, Detective, founded in 1928 to capitalise on the voracious interest in crime stories that crowded the newspapers. Threatening to raised the veil on the strange life of Letitia Thoreau, it uncovered the first of what would become several sources of extra income for Thoreau. She had, it was discovered, been on the books of one Agence Roof, a private detective agency owned and operated by Georges Rufignac, where she worked under the pseudonym of Yolandi. 
since the summer of 1936, she had taken on several low-key jobs, mostly dealing with tailing men under the suspicion of adultery. In itself, it was not as sensational as it first may have seemed, but once the story began to unravel, far more trails opened up, leading to much more spectacular revelations. Rufinyak himself, it seemed, was not the most reliable witness, and his testimony pertaining to his dealings with Turo was shady at best. In his early stories, he told of how Turo had given him the impression that she was a reliable sleuth, and that she was well acquainted with the detective profession well before she began to practice it in my service. Within two days, however, this story had changed, and he now suggested that she was an amateur at best, routinely bungled reports, and only worked for him on a handful of occasions anyway. This, however, failed to meet with new facts that would now come into light. Firstly, that her job at the Maxi factory was not quite what it first seemed, and that she had been recommended to the boss there by Rufinyak himself, when they came to him to find a worker who could double up as an informer to spy on the communist unions in the workforce. If she had been such a bungler, would Rufinyak have really recommended her for such a position? Secondly, her job at the Balmusettes was similarly set up by Rufinyak, and though it was possible that these jobs had been simply part of her trailing of suspected adulterers, the cloakrooms of the music halls were well known to be centres of information used to pass on correspondence to gangs and political groups throughout the city. In the very least, Rufinyak's later testimonies were seemingly playing down his involvement with Thoreau and her level of importance to him as an informant. The next and far more provocative detail that was further uncovered to come out concerning Thoreau and her association with Agence Roof involved her recent inauguration into the Ligue Republicaine de Bien Public, the left-wing group whose pin badge she wore on her breast on the day of her murder. Membership to this group required two vouchers of good character from present members, one of which, it turned out, was Georges Rufignac. The other was a police inspector, a Monsieur Setour. This link with the police offered a whole new angle and one that was much more juicy than simply following around dirty old men. Had she, as it seemed to be pointing towards, been employed also as a police informant, installed within a political organisation to infiltrate and spy? Thoreau herself had expressed politically right-wing ideas in her private life, so it did now seem somewhat out of step for her to have been a member of a politically left-leaning organisation for any other reason. In response to the rumours circulating wholesale throughout the newspapers, police issued a press release detailing the facts of the case as they were aware. In it, they reiterated that Thoreau had indeed worked for Rufinyak, but her work there involved individuals of no great importance and that she had never worked for any other agency. In an effort to play it down further, they stated that her reports whilst working there had held a childish character. They went on to ensure that her lifestyle was completely in keeping with the money that she earned whilst working both at the Maxi factory and her tips from the Balmusette. She had absolutely no other source of revenue, they stated, and her lifestyle corresponded with her income. Lastly, they attempted to quash suggestions that her murder could be linked with a series of other unsolved murders that had happened earlier that year. Despite the furore around the case being reported in the press, the reality for the police investigation was that they had very little to work with, and as the summer rolled around, the entire affair began to run quiet. At least, until July, when a news story broke that presented yet another, more complex, dangerous, and even more captivating angle, building on the previous ideas of Thoreau, the informant. On July 16th, 1937, La Liberté, a Parisian left-wing newspaper, published a story on Thoreau that suggested a link between her murder and two other high-profile murder cases that had taken place earlier that year. Both murders were of well-known émigrés, the first being the stabbing of Dmitri Navashin, a Russian economist, and the second, the murder of the Rosselli brothers, two Italian brothers, one of whom was an anti-fascist activist. In both cases, the men had left their home countries after political disagreements. Furthermore, 
Both cases were highly sensitive for France, who was doing everything it could to avoid political tensions with Italy, who were hoping to court the fascist Mussolini government just enough to forge an alliance away from Hitler's regime in Germany. Dmitry Navashin was born in Moscow in 1889 and had lived an upper-class lifestyle, schooling and working within the Russian elite. After the First World War, he had taken on the role of overseeing Russia's German prisoners and then gone on to work high up in the Soviet government throughout the 1920s. In 1928, he visited Paris, however, and chose to not return to Russia. A leftist, but not a communist, he worked similarly in France, advising the French left government, though many held suspicions that despite his political immigrant status, he was still tied to the Soviets and worked as an undercover spy. On the 25th of January 1937, he was found stabbed to death with a sawn-off French bayonet lying on the ground next to his dog that had been shot. Nello and Carlo Rosselli were Italian-born immigrants that had moved to France for political asylum after Carlo Rosselli had become an anti-fascist activist, working to smuggle high-profile anti-fascist targets out of the country, running an anti-Mussolini newspaper and operating in a leading role within a left-wing organisation. Carlo escaped to France after being exiled to a penal colony in 1929, where he continued to fight for the Spanish Republicans during the Spanish Civil War against the fascists, along with producing and disseminating anti-fascist propaganda across Italy via leaflet drops and newspapers. He was killed as he drove his car down a small country road whilst visiting his sick brother. The pair had found themselves suddenly blocked in by a car on the road feigning a breakdown, and as Nello stepped out of the car to see what the problem was, he was shot dead and then stabbed by a second man, whilst a shooter leant into the Roselli's car and shot Carlo at the wheel. In both cases, the murdered men had made strong political enemies both at home and whilst in France, namely those on the right wing who opposed anti-fascist views. Both murders shared similarities in their sensational execution and in the fact that both murders could have been carried out by a whole handful of different groups from almost any political leaning. What both La Labite and the police were yet to discover, however, was that both murders shared one other similarity. That a man named Jean Filio, a professional assassin with strong right-wing political associations, had been heavily involved in organising and carrying out both. The political situation in France throughout the 1930s, was nothing short of a complicated web of backstabbing, suspicion, anger and division. In Germany, Hitler was rising to power, threatening war, and in Spain, the Republicans were busy fighting the fascists in a bitter civil war. Meanwhile, the fascists in Italy and the communists in the Soviet bloc had their own French supporters, along with the socialists, industrialists, royalists and nationalists. Protests, industrial strikes and riots were increasingly becoming a common occurrence, as was political scandal, culminating in the Stavisky affair, a financial scandal involving the selling of false bonds under the protection of the French elite that swept through the ruling government in 1934, instigating many of the higher-ups in the scandal and seeing them eventually ousted and replaced by a left-wing coalition government headed up by Leon Blum in 1936 after a series of violent riots. This new French government, with their strict anti-interventionist policy, attempted to balance a precarious public position of left-leaning moderacy in the vain hope that they could sway as many as possible into an alliance that would stand against the opposing German threat. In reality, however, this only appeared weak and flimsy to many, displeasing many more than they hoped to win over. The CSAR, otherwise known as the Cagoule, a far-right fascist political organisation headed by Eugene Deloncle, was officially formed in June 1936, largely as a reaction to the government's response to the Stavisky affair, which they thought was too passive and from being angered at the left's gaining of power, which they saw as a result. They were funded by industrialists who were keen on their anti-socialist values and supported by many high-ranking French military leaders and veterans. With this new left-wing government banning the right-wing leagues, a vacuum formed and the Cagoule leveraged the situation to sweep up many who held strong beliefs and who felt they had little or no outlet. 
The organization had a membership of several thousand Parisians, organized into small cells, who, for the most part, supported the group's apparent aims to protect the country from a potential communist threat, and due to the clandestine nature and fractured structure, knew little about the true nature of the group's political gender, which was to overthrow the government in a violent coup d'etat to install a fascist dictatorship that they themselves were intending to run. New members were initiated into this group and given pseudonyms and passwords with treason punishable by death. And the Kagul were not just hot air either. They focused heavily on the need for action and they put it to practice with violent immediacy. In August of 1937, they'd blown up a hangar of planes that the French had acquired from America with the intention of filtering them through to the Spanish Republicans via a third-party country, damaging two and destroying two more. The audacious bombing had been carried out by a man and woman who showed up to the military hangar dressed in uniform. The man claimed to be a captain and stating that the woman he was with had been sexually assaulted by a member of the military. He told those on the base that he needed access to the hangar in order to question the men on the base about the crime. Afraid to ruffle the feathers of the higher-up, the pair were allowed straight onto the base, where they promptly set a cluster of time bombs and then left, blowing the hangar later that day. The captain in the whole operation had been none other than Jean Filiot, the Cagoule assassin. As autumn fell across Paris, the police investigation into the murder of Letitia Thoreau had all but dried up, with no new leads surfacing and little information to work with. Despite the links made by La Liberté, no solid evidence had been found that linked the murder with the earlier assassinations, and the entire story had ground to a halt. Until November this was, when the cagoule began to quickly unravel, and with it, a series of new revelations were brought into a stark spotlight. By November, the Kugul's violent operations, including blowing up several buildings in the hopes of creating the impression of a communist conspiracy, had reached a peak such that the police could no longer afford to drag their feet. They infiltrated the group and arrested many high-profile members, effectively dismantling it from within. Among those arrested were two who talked of assassinations during their testimonies, including those of Navashin and the Rosselli brothers. Somewhat out of left field, however, was the inclusion of the murder of Letitia Thoreau, who they told of having been killed by Jean Filiot as part of a cool assassination plot against her. One of the arrested men, Fernand Jacobiez, an arms runner for the group, told police that Filiot himself had told him that he had carried out the hit upon Thoreau, whilst the second man, René Lacouti, testified that he had been told that Cagoule had planned the assassination and had tailed her for months. But what interest did this far-right group have in Letitia Thoreau? As it turned out, all of the sensational articles based on rumour that the press had published since her death only began to scratch the surface of the truth in the life of the young Italian immigrant and the intuition of Rufignac that she was well acquainted with the detective profession was only the half of it. The final report written by police on the murder case of Letitia Thoreau stated that every trail of evidence led them to believe that the Cagoule was somehow involved in the murder. Officially unsolved, it's a cold case with no certainties, but much room for speculation. Through the unravelling of the Cagoule, new angles were opened upon the life of Letitia Thoreau, but there is still much that we are left to only guess at. With the right-wing sympathies that she often expressed, it's often theorised that Thoreau began working as an informant at a much earlier point in time than earlier suspected, possibly even while she was still just a teenager in the early 1920s, shortly after her arrival in France, where she began working for the Italian Secret Service as an informant on other immigrants. Her yearly trips to visit her father were a unique opportunity to ferry information across the border to Italy. This was confirmed by a list of Italian spies operating in Paris that was found in 1929, and sure enough, it contained the name of Letitia Thoreau, which all but confirmed at least some involvement for the Italian government. It was also found that for a while, she was the lover of a fascist party member living in Paris. Her work for the Italian Secret Service likely led her to working for both Rufignac and the French police, who sought to downplay her abilities, but in fact, 
were both working to install her within a left-wing organisation as an undercover informant at the time of her death. It's also through Rufignac and the Balmusette she so often frequented that led her to becoming involved with the Cagoule. The group were known to frequent the dance halls and the croak rooms were commonly used as mail drop sites. The earlier stories in the papers that she'd been caught with her hands in the pockets of client jackets that had come out early on in the investigation of her murder now took on a sinister new light when considering that she was more than likely not trying to fleece the owner of the cash from their wallet but instead fleece them of information or identity. Furthermore, as more members of the Cagoule were caught up in the police action against the group in November of 1937, rumours grew that Thoreau had made a lover of the highly ranked Gabrielle Jontet, a Cagoulist founding member of the highest rank. It appeared then that Letitia Thoreau was playing a dangerous game, working for several opposing parties, selling information to whoever bore interest enough to pay her for the pleasure. So just who did kill her? There are more or less only two main theories, but neither have any solid conclusion. In the first, there are those that believe in the testimonies given by the Cagoulards after their arrest that Jean Filiol had carried out the murder as part of a Cagoule plot. This would seem the most simple explanation, but at the same time, it doesn't exist without problems. Jean Filiol's previous assassinations were very rarely as clean as the murder of Thoreau. He blew off heads he stabbed his victims with sawn-off bayonets and then he shot their dogs. The murder on the Metro was, in stark contrast, quick, quiet and professional, far beyond the reaches of the aggression normally carried out by this violent assassin. There also exist problems with the original testimonies, one of which appeared to have been taken after a severe beating and the other which was recanted shortly after being given. Furthermore, the police never officially charged anyone with the murder and the Cagoule never openly admitted to having carried out the assassination, something which they did admit in every other case that they were involved in. In the weeks leading up to her death, it's likely that Thoreau had sensed that she had gotten in over her head. She expressed anxiety to her family and at one point she told her younger brother that she was planning on moving to Egypt. It's possible that the two attacks she suffered in the week prior to her murder were attempts carried out by Filiol. They were certainly far more basic in their execution, and the second bore some resemblance to the assassination of the Roselli brothers. So what of the second theory? This one lies within the Italian secret service. Gabriel Jantet, her Cagoulard lover, said himself that the ISS had accounts to settle with her, and it's possible that she simply became a woman who knew too much. The execution of the murder was certainly more in keeping with the more professional operation. Furthermore, an Italian connection suggests that the police would likely have been aware of such an existence and would more than likely have been pressured to avoid such a link, given that the French government's political stance towards Italy and the precarious position that they were attempting to balance in keeping the fascists on side. In both scenarios, it appears that the murder of Letitia Thoreau came about due to the complicated political division that existed during the period and the difficult position that she'd worked herself into, juggling information for parties on every side of the equation. Her murder case was wrapped up with little fanfare and brushed under the carpet, only for files, documents and testimonies to be disappeared in the French house-clearing process that took part after the war as people in high places attempted to eradicate their sketchy past. Still today, there are members of the French elite who are related to those who had a hand in the operations of the Cagoule, and as such, it is all the less likely that any new revelations will come about to uncover any more to the story of the young Italian immigrant whose dangerous social ambitions appeared to have eventually caught up with her. Her murder is a mystery, not just in the baffling execution, which leaves nothing but questions, but also in the hazy watercolour image we are left piecing together the perpetrator. Whilst it was almost certainly a professional hit, exactly who it was that plotted the affair is a question with no true answer. So that was the case of the murder in the Metro. And 
to say that there's a little bit to talk about here is an understatement. So we'll get on with that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, and that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3, and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So where do we start here, really? It's worth noting that this is a, a really massive story in France. I think I, I don't think it's so famous outside of France, but within France, it's massive. If you're into sort of crime and history and I suppose specifically this period in France, you'll know this story almost without a doubt. I knew nothing of this story, but I do love a good espionage tale. But I genuinely knew nothing of this story. And, and I, I, I didn't really know a great deal about France 
from this time. I've read about in between the wars um, and the political situation, how it was so precarious. I've obviously read about that before, especially about Mussolini and the fascists and the Spanish Civil War as well. So, you know, I, I had like a very basic grounding, but I suppose what I want to say here is I, I apologise for how heavy this episode was like politically, but you just can't tell the story without it. And it was a real struggle for me to tell enough of the politics, but keep it light enough and moving forward. So I didn't sell you short, but without getting too heavy, because this was a, is a really heavy story if you really want to look into it. And um, if you do enjoy the, did enjoy this story and you enjoy espionage and, and politics and you know history and that stuff, I would certainly recommend reading a, there's a really good book on this, which is called... Murder in the Metro, Letitia Thoreau and the Cagoule in 1930s France. Um, and it's written by Gail Brunel and Annette Finley-Crosswhite. You'll find it in the sources, um, in the show notes and such, and on the website and that. I, I'll give a little warning. It's not a, a, a page turner. You know, it's not one of those sort of like crime novels that you'll smash through as a page turner. It's, it's, it's definitely leans way more on the academic side. But it, it sort of straddles a nice line, I think, between those two. It is quite academic in its structure and, and prose, but at the same time, it, it is quite a page-turner, you know, because, I mean, what a story. It has those sort of page-turner elements to it, but it is a little heavy. But it's nothing crazy. And, and like I say, if you, do, if you liked this episode, basically, I recommend heavily like to read that book because it will give you much more detail that, I, like I say, I wouldn't say I, I breezed over it, but I tried to smooth it a little to make it, you know, not so heavy and, and chug it all down. Because at the end of the day, this is like a, a podcast that's an hour, right? Not a massive, great big book. So, yeah, I, I definitely recommend reading that book. Anyway, Letitia Tarot, what do you reckon? Who do you think done it? I think it's absolutely fascinating. I definitely agree that it was a professional hit, for sure. And I definitely agree that it was because she was sort of spinning so many plates. That's where I'm at. I think probably the attempts on her life were perhaps by Jean Filiol or his planned assassination for the Cagoule. So I think she was probably, I think she probably had both groups after her. I think she probably had the Italian Secret Service and the Cagoule after her. I think the Cagoule were unsuccessful and I think it was the Italian Secret Service that got to her. The interesting thing with that, and it, where I feel a little bit almost tinfoil hat saying this, is if you believe it to be the Italian Secret Service, you sort of have to lean into the idea that there's a bit of conspiracy here and that the chances are that the police knew about it or were warned against, you know, if they made any of these links between the murder and the Italian Secret Service, that they should sort of forget about it. Because at the time, you had the French who were kind of trying to court the fascists in Italy in a way that was, let's be neutral, I suppose you could say, and hopefully they'll join an alliance with us against the Germans. So they didn't really want to sort of overstep from that, that, that neutral barrier, you know. So therefore you're kind of left, essentially kind of looking down the barrel of a, a bit of a conspiracy here. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to lean into that. Even, I mean, I know that conspiracies are, have happened in the past. And I know that some, you know, especially in like South America and things like that. But you, I'm still always a little bit kind of like, ooh, am I, re- am, I, am I really putting my tinfoil hat on here for this one? I feel like I would love to read more about this. I certainly need to read more of the context around the case before I start making any judgments, I think, about whether or not I definitely think it was a conspiracy. But it's a fascinating case, and, and that's kind of where I'm at. So that's, that's, that's kind of my position, I, and I would love to hear yours. The reason I think it, it does lean towards the Italian Secret Service more than the Cagoule is that the fact that they never charged the Cagoule with the assassination and the fact that the Cagoule never admitted to it. I mean, when you read about this group, they weren't shy. In large part, they were a terrorist organisation and, and, you know, terrorist organisations don't tend to do things quietly. They, that's not the point. You know, they were quite bombastic in their approach to violence and, and that was the point. So I really don't think there's any reason for them not to have claimed the Letitia Thoreau murder at any, especially not at any point. Once they'd kind of been 
infiltrated by the police and unraveled. It, it, it seems pointless for me why they would hold that information back when they admitted to everything else that they did, which was, and I don't want to play down the death of a, a woman and the murder of a, a, a woman, but the other things they did were far, I'd say more bombastic and, and far bigger and had much bigger kind of political implications. So why would they play down something that is quite small scale, really, like the murder of a woman on a train? I don't think they would. I really don't think they would have done that. So I think that's what sort of pushes me towards the Italian Secret Service angle. How do you think he'd done it? I mean, that's a question, isn't it? I mean, that uh, that's something that's been sort of crawled all over. And I, I think we can pretty much rule out that he entered the second class car. The one thing I do think is that there's no witnesses that saw him come off the train in Port Doree, right? But the one sort of, the two groups of witnesses that they have for, that, that got on the first class car at that station and found the body are a group of prostitutes who did, for their credit, hang about on the platform to give the police their testimonies. But I would have thought probably wouldn't want too much more to do with it than that because of their profession. You know, they probably didn't want to be hanging around the police too much. So whether or not they just wanted to get away quickly, like give their testimonies and leave, I don't know. And th- But then the other guy certainly didn't want to get involved. So at the very least, you could say, well, perhaps that other guy, I mean, he's the most unreliable witness, basically, we have. And, and so I'm not entirely convinced that he didn't see someone get off the train and just not mention it. I think that's perfectly in line with the rest of his testimony, basically, that was, look, I didn't want to get involved with this. So I checked to see if she was dead and then I, I, I cleared off quick so that my, you know, my fiancé wouldn't get involved in any scandal. So, you know, if he didn't want to get involved, like him or his fiancé, in any scandal at all, it perfectly plays into the fact that when the police then said, well, did you see anyone get off the train, you know, when the train arrived, he's not then going to turn around and say, oh, yeah, just you know, get your artist in, I've got a great description for you. He's going to, you know, say no, isn't he? Then that sort of leads us to the prostitutes. Um, And maybe they just didn't see anyone get off the train because they entered by different doors. So there was two sets of doors doors to the train. And the unreliable witness got, I forget his name, um, but the the unreliable witness um, got on one set of doors and the prostitutes got in through the other set of doors. So they maybe just didn't see him leave. If he left by the same set of doors as the unreliable witness maybe they just didn't see him leave or you know so there's all sorts that I, I, I don't necessarily think it's completely set in stone that he didn't get off the train in port Dorie. the other theory being that he killed her whilst they were in port charenton which I, I don't really necessarily agree with that because the two guys from the second class car that heard the scream it doesn't make a great deal of sense to me so I, I don't, plus I also do agree with that criticism of that, which is if he'd have made a mistake, he would have ended up being trapped on the train, you know, really quite quickly and, and easily. So I do think it was a bit too high risk. So that's, that's my thoughts on it. Like I said, I would love to hear your thoughts. If you would like to get in contact, you absolutely can. Uh, you can email me, contact at darkhistories.com. You'll find links to that in the show notes and if you go on the website darkhistories.com you'll find links on how all the ways that you can contact me social media facebook instagram twitter and email um, you also find ways of supporting and speaking of support so from june which is you know a couple of months away still um i'm gonna start doing a random raffle to everyone who has signed up and is a paying member of each month going forward from june uh, I'm going to put all their names into like a random number generator and pull one out and the winner gets a t-shirt. So going forward, that's kind of my plan that I want to do like a new kind of little perk for the patrons. Um, just basically, if you're a patron, you, you just once a month get an entry into the raffle um, for a t-shirt, um, which I think would be kind of fun and a, a, just a nice thing to do every month. The reason I'm bringing it up so early is because I'm done all the t-shirt designs up until now. Um, We've got like a handful of t-shirt designs and they're okay. I've got a bit of a background in graphic design, but I'm not like a massive t-shirt illustrator or or illustrator at all. Um, You know, I'm not 
massively skilled. So um, basically, I'm putting it out so early and letting you all know is that if you are interested in t-shirt design or, or doing a t-shirt design for the podcast, then get in touch with me and maybe we can sort something out. And I'm, I'm not sort of like chucking this out there as in like, hey, do you want to do some work for me for free? Like it will be a mutually beneficial agreement. Like, so yeah, I just thought I'd chuck it out there. Basically, I like working with listeners of the show as, as much as I possibly can. So yeah, basically get in touch with me if you'd be interested. So that's a couple of things there. New raffle coming up from June onwards where you'll get the chance to win a t-shirt if you're a member of the patron. And also if you're interested in designing t-shirt, a couple of t-shirts or a t-shirt design or whatever, then get in touch with me. Like I say, uh, contact at Dark Histories and we can, you know, sort something out. So anyway, thanks for listening as always. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. So until then, stay well and sleep tight.